Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 32, Numbers, chapters 30 and 31. Well, this week in Numbers, chapter 30, we're going to take up the matter of making vows and oaths to the Lord. You know, I suppose that every believer, Jewish or Gentile, has at some time in our walk made a promise to God, haven't we? Some folks make vows and oaths regularly, and you know, among the Eastern Orthodox Christians, making vows are a regular part of worship. Every religion I've ever studied and examined from Hinduism to Baha'ism, from Judaism to Islam, and all the others, have some inherent understanding of making promises to their God in return for something important. Atheists find themselves in life-threatening situations, at times looking upward and making a promise to any, making a promise to any spiritual deity that just might be listening. All right, in exchange for being rescued. When we get married, we exchange wedding vows, promises to one another invoking the name of Jehovah. When we testify in a court of law, we swear or we, we take an oath to tell the entire truth as the best we know it, so help us God. And the Bible is positively overflowing with men and women, making vows to the Lord. What we need to understand is that these vows and their oaths were completely real and valid. They were not superstition. And that the Lord expects these promises to be kept. Even so, there are rules and regulations established by precedent on who could or should make vows and oaths, under what kind of circumstances, who could legitimately avoid a vow. And at times, a caution is raised against making vows in the heat of the moment due to the seriousness of making promises and bargains with the Lord. Let's read Numbers chapter 30 together. Open your Bibles to Numbers Chapter 30, which in your complete Jewish Bible is page 186. Numbers chapter 30. Moses told the people of Israel everything, just as Adonai had ordered Moses. And then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, and he said, Here is what Adonai has ordered. When a man makes a vow to Adonai or formally obligates himself by swearing an oath, he's not to break his word, but is to do everything he said he'd do. When a woman makes a vow to Adonai formally obligating herself while she is a minor living in her father's house, then if her father has heard what she's vowed or obligated herself to do and holds his peace, then all of her vows remain binding. Every obligation she has bound herself to will stand. But if on the day her father hears of it, he expresses his disapproval, then none of her vows or obligations she has bound herself to will stand. And Adonai will forgive her. 
because her father expressed his disapproval. If, having made vows or rashly committed herself to an obligation, she gets married, and her husband hears, but he holds his peace with her on the day he learns of it, then her vows and obligations she has bound herself to will stand. But if her husband expresses his disapproval on the day he hears it, he will void the vow which is on her and the obligation to which she has bound herself. And Adonai will forgive her. Now the vow of a widow, however, or of a divorcee, including everything to which she has obligated herself, will stand against her. If a woman vowed in her husband's house or obligated herself with an oath, and when her husband heard it but held his peace with her and did not express disapproval, then all of her vows and obligations will stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day he hears them, then whatever she said, vows, uh, vows or binding obligation will not stand. Her husband has voided them, and Adonai will forgive her. Her husband may let every vow and every binding obligation stand, or he may void it. But if her husband entirely holds his peace with her day after day, then he confirms all of her vows and obligations. He must let them stand because he has held his peace with her on the day he heard them. If he makes them null and void after he has heard them, then he will bear the consequent guilt. These are the laws which Adonai ordered Moses between a man and his wife, between a father and his daughter, if she's a minor living in her father's house. Now, before we get too deep into this chapter, I want to point out that there is a distinct difference in the Bible between an oath and a vow. An oath imposes an obligation upon the one making the oath. A vow, on the other hand, is by definition a conditional promise. That is, if Jacob returns home safely, if Israel is victorious over the Canaanites, if Jephthah defeats the Ammonites, all these ifs, then they will respond with some predetermined action to complete their part of the bargain. Oaths tend to come in two flavors. The kind that's a promise and the kind that makes some kind of assertion, like asserting that you didn't steal that camel. Okay. A covenant, by definition, is a promissory oath. In Hebrew, this kind of oath is labeled as a shevot ishar. Shevot ishar. Now, oaths usually are made in the name of some god or another. Of course, in the case of the Hebrews, it was Yehovah. Thus, we'll see the Hebrew term, Nishvabe Yehoveh, used, which means, swear by Yehoveh. And that's used when one person is making an oath to another person, but is invoking God's name to seal that oath between them. But when an oath is made directly to God, an oath between a person and God, the Hebrew term is Neshba Le Yehoveh, which means swear to Yehoveh. Swear by Yehoveh, swear to Yehoveh. 
Now, these Hebrews of ancient Bible times were no different than we are. Often in moments of crisis, we will plead with God and make a vow to Him, often unthinking and rash. Oh God, I'll go to church or synagogue every week. I promise never to use swear words again. I'll never ask you for anything again. Right. You can probably recall some doozies that you've either heard or maybe even uttered it yourself, if you think back a little bit. The problem is that verse 3 says this. If a person makes an oath or a vow, he is not to break it. He is to carry out everything that he said he would do. Oh boy. I think sometimes we make so many promises to the Lord, we can't even remember what we said. The problem is the Lord has a photographic memory. In reality, verse 3 says that if a man, not a person, a man makes a vow. This is referring to a male specifically, because then verse 4 begins, if a woman makes a vow. So instantly we see that the Lord looks upon the vows of a woman differently than he looks upon the vows of a man. And before we examine the particulars of this interesting, and I'm sure... Some of you ladies, a bit uncomfortable distinction between the vows of men versus women. Let's see exactly why this difference existed in the first place. Now, the principles from which the laws about vows come and how each sex is obligated to these vows or not are already well established in the Torah. And it is that just as a child is to submit to their parent and a man to the Lord, so as a wife to submit to her husband. Put in a way that's a little less irritating to the modern Western woman, a wife is under the covering and authority of her husband, just as a husband is under the covering and authority of God. So the idea of the ordinances set up in Numbers 30 is that neither a child nor a wife is given permission by Jehovah to substitute self-imposed, self-created obligations to God that are in addition to or in place of standard God-ordained duties. Further, a child or a wife cannot make a vow to the Lord, the keeping of which affects the parent or the husband in such a way as to make that vow offensive to them. This does not necessarily speak, by the way, to the nature or the intent of the vow. That, that is, it's not that the vow might be an evil vow or an irresponsible vow that can't possibly be kept. Rather, the vows of a child or a woman come first under her earthly authority before they're considered valid to her heavenly authority, Yehovah. Now, as we go about delving into the rules about vow-making in the Torah, especially as concerns women, keep in mind 
that in the New Testament, vows and promises to the Lord continued. And they were considered completely acceptable and usual and generally a good thing. In the Gospels and the Epistles, we will read of believers, even apostles, making vows as just a normal course of their lives. However, Yeshua warned that there was a downside of vow making and said that a vow cannot be used to abrogate or avoid an otherwise lawful expectation of a person. Now, what I mean by that? Jesus specifically addressed this common practice of, of his day about making a vow that allowed a person to evade proper care for their parents. This was a real problem in, in his era. Matthew, the story is told in Matthew 15. It says this, He, meaning Yeshua, answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, you know, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God as a vow. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus, you have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. See, this is but one example of where a person selfishly or out of complete ignorance of scriptural truth would make a vow to give something to God instead of doing what's already been set down as a permanent God-ordained responsibility in the Torah. In this instance that Yeshua was talking about, it was that a man said that the money he, he, he could have used to care for his parents He's instead vowed to the Lord. So alas, he just can't meet his obligation as a son to care for them. In other words, he gave the money to the priesthood instead of using it to see after his aged mother and father. And Yeshua blamed this incorrect mindset primarily on the teachings of doctrines of men which he refers to as traditions. Now understand... What Jesus was saying was, oh, you say you study the Holy Scriptures and you claim to be doing what the Scriptures say, but in reality you're not. You probably don't even really know what the Scriptures say because you have chosen to accept a whole list of doctrines that other men have told you is the truth. Doctrines that are self-serving at times rather than going by what the Word simply says. Folks, because the Jews have come to call their doctrines tradition, it is typically thought that Jesus was only referring to the traditions that Jews made. 
In fact, he's speaking to all man-made traditions, and that includes the vast trove of traditions that Christians call doctrines. And Yeshua says that the result of this acceptance of doctrines over Scripture is that their heart is far from me. Now basically the way chapter 30 works is that it organizes this issue of vow making into four case studies or four examples. And and the instruction concerning males is not one of these four cases. For the man, meaning a man of an age of accountability, not a boy child, it is a very straightforward matter. Make a vow, keep a vow, that's the deal. No mulligans. There is no way out that does not end up being sin. No one else, men, is held responsible for you making a vow. And there is no winking and looking the other way by the Lord, regardless of how desperate the situation under which that any of us men may have entered into a vow. Yeshua didn't change this. Absolutely no way did Yeshua say that the ordinances concerning vows are hereby abolished. What he did say was to be very careful what you vow. And that it's better to just make your yes, yes, and your no, no. To follow the God principles long established in the word without thinking that somehow you can make a vow to kind of get you around obedience to those principles. Probably one of the most devastating examples in the entire Bible of rash vow making by a man is the story of Jephthah in the book of Judges. Jephthah was an Israelite, probably of the tribe of Gad, because it says he was born in the territory of Gilead. And Gilead was at first called Gad, by the way, one of the twelve tribes. And Gad was one of those two and a half Israelite tribes who chose to disavow themselves from the land that Jehovah had set aside for his people, Canaan. The area of Gad during the era of the judges called Gilead was on the east side of the Jordan River in an area generally called the Transjordan. Now the backdrop for the story of Jephthah was that the nation of Ammon was making trouble with Gilead and it was necessary for Gilead to do battle with the forces of Ammon. But they lacked the military leader necessary to rally the people of Gilead to victory. Jephthah had been kicked out of Gilead some years earlier because his mother was a prostitute and so Jephthah was seen as illegitimate. However, Jephthah was known as a fierce and effective warrior leader. So representatives from Gilead tracked him down, went to him, asked him to come back and lead Gilead in battle in return for his being reinstated to the tribe. And he agreed. But before he went to war, 
Jephthah approached the Lord and he made a vow in order to seek God's favor for the coming battle. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a really good idea. The essence of the vow was that if, if the Lord would give Jephthah victory, then he would do something specific in return. That's the typical format for making a vow. Remember I told you, the difference between an oath and a vow is that a vow, by definition, is always conditional. If, then. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11. We're going to start reading at 29. That's on page 285 of the complete Jewish Bible. Page 285, Judges 11, starting with 29 through 40. Then the spirit of Adonai came upon Ephtah, Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, on, the, on through uh, Mitzpah of Gilead, and from there over to the people of Ammon. And Ephtah made a vow to Adonai. If you will hand the people of Ammon over to me, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, it will belong to Adonai. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So, Jephthah crossed over to fight the people of Ammon, and Adonai handed them over to him. He killed them from Aroer until you reach Minit, 20 cities all the way to Avel Kramim. It was a massacre. So the people of Ammon were defeated before the people of Israel. Well, as Jephthah was returning to his house in Mitzpah, his daughter came dancing out to meet him with tambourines. She was his only child. He had no other son, son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Oh no, my daughter, you're breaking my heart. Why must you be the cause of such pain to me? I made a vow to Adonai. I can't go back on my word. She said to him, Father, you have made a vow to Adonai, so do whatever you said you would do to me. Because Adonai did take vengeance on your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, just do this one thing for me. Let me be alone for two months. I'll go away into the mountains with my friends and mourn because I will die without getting married. You may go, he answered. And he sent her away for two months. And she left, she and her friends, and mourned in the mountains that she would die unmarried. And after two months, she returned to her father, and he did with her what he had vowed. She remained, she had remained a virgin. So it became a law in Israel that the women of Israel would go every year for four days to lament the daughter of Jephthah from Gilead. Imagine this man, Yiftach, Jephthah, having no idea that it would be his only daughter who would by chance 
become the object of the sacrificial vow he had made to the Lord, he followed through. He sacrificed this girl. Now, in no way does the Lord condone or ask for or accept human sacrifice. Yet so clear is his mandate that a man who makes a vow, no matter what it is, is to perform that vow that Jephthah felt he had little choice but to commit this horror upon his own child. Now, as an aside, I've heard many Christians and Jews try to make a case that Jephthah's daughter was not offered up as a burnt offering to God. And as a way around this unsavory and disgusting act that on the surface seems to meet God's approval, um, he did something else. But the scripture is very clear that not only did Jephthah do exactly as he had vowed, but that there was a regular sad day of commemoration established for that event in Israel. Jephthah made what appeared to all around him, everybody who was listening, a very pious and reasonable offering to the Lord, at least at the time he made the vow it seemed reasonable. He never dreamed what the result would be. But see, that's the problem with making vows in the first place. They're dangerous. We have no idea of all the possible outcomes. I'd also like to note that Jephthah could have made a different decision. He could have chosen to break his vow with the Lord and then bear his own sin for his rashness. But he didn't. Instead, in some terribly false sense of piety, and apparently not even understanding that the Lord does not want human sacrifice, Jephthah went through with the terms of the vow he had established and killed his own innocent daughter. So men beware. Our vows have power. And they have consequences. And once they're made, there's only a couple of possible outcomes. That we fulfill our vow, no matter how unintentionally painful, or we break our vow and we live with our sin for it. Jephthah may have fulfilled his vow to the Lord, but the Lord could not have been pleased with this. Well, we have our first of the four cases of vow-making in Numbers 30, the case of a virgin, just simply meaning a girl who's not been married, who was still living at home. This means she was under the authority of her parents, her father in particular. And the rule is that if this young girl makes a vow and her father hears of it but does not respond, and then then the vow stands, no matter what the vow is. But if the father hears her making this vow and he disapproves of it, he can annul it. Further, the Lord will not consider her unfulfilled vow a sin because it was her authority, her earthly authority, her father, who told her she could not fulfill it. And we're told the Lord will forgive her. In other words, in a case of two opposing wrongs, so to speak, 
one of making an unauthorized or rash vow and another of not completing that vow, it was better to be obedient to the authority of her father, an authority that's a foundational God principle, than to fulfill the vow to God that the girl's father disagreed with. And by the way, the girl would have fully known that she had no place making a vow to Yehovah without her father's prior approval. She knew this. Now a second case is proposed, starting in verse 7. And it kind of builds on that first case we just talked about. This is the case of an unmarried girl who, while still living at home, makes a vow that her father finds out about, but he doesn't annul it. The girl, therefore, is bound to the terms of that vow. Later, however, the case goes, she marries. And her husband hears of this vow that was made prior to their marriage. A completely legitimate and enforced vow. He now has the option of allowing the terms of that vow to be brought to fruition, or he can now annul that vow. And just as if the girl's father had annulled the vow, and she would not be held responsible by God for not fulfilling it, it's the same for her husband. He can agree with or annul his wife's vows. Why? Because authority over this girl, now a woman, was transferred from her father to her husband when she was wed. Verse 10 begins the third case. The case of a woman who is widowed, or she's divorced, and she makes a vow. Since she's not under the authority of a father or a husband, whatever she vows stands, just like for a man, and it cannot be annulled. In essence, in the case of a divorcee or widow, the status of her vow and her obligation is exactly the same as that of a full-grown male. And the last case, the fourth, is of a married woman who makes a vow. Her husband knows of this vow, but he remains silent. The result is her vow stands and she's responsible to fulfill it. But understand, there are vows that can affect the whole family. And if her husband lets stand a vow by his wife that he considers it terribly unwise or perhaps even against the principle of God, then he at least bears some of the responsibility. Verse 14 gives us some general direction about vows, but really this is somewhat of a different type of vow that's going to be discussed here. This is a vow of self-denial. That is, it's a vow in which the terms are that the woman will deny herself something in return for, for the Lord granting her request. And we see a vow like this, by the way, in the case of Samson. When his mother told God that she would deny herself the possession of her child. If the Lord would allow her to become pregnant and if the child was a son. That is, she would dedicate her son's entire life to the service of the Lord and thereby deny herself of all the necessary duties and honors that a son might normally confer upon his mother like caring for her in old age. Let's wrap up the discussion of chapter 30 and the issue of vows, mainly as it concerns women and children, with examining two kinds of vows. Now, usually these two different kinds of vows are given different names. 
but sometimes they're not translated that way. One kind is called in Hebrew neder, and neder should be translated as vow. It means to do something positive, such as making a sacrificial offering of some kind. The second kind is called ishar, and ishar would better be translated as a pledge. And this pledge is generally associated with fasting or some some form of abstinence. This is the kind of of vow or pledge associated, for instance, with a Nazarite vow, which involves abstinence from drinking or eating any grape product or cutting one's hair or from touching a corpse, even if it were your parents. What is common among all vows and pledges is that an oath is taken to initiate them. And by definition, an oath invokes the name of God. Even oaths are of two kinds. Remember we talked about this, going back to the beginning. One kind of an oath is a promise, the other kind is an assertion. An assertion type of oath is the kind a defendant would make if they were on trial. Under oath he asserts the facts of the case and thereby his innocence perhaps in the matter. A promissory type of oath says that a person makes making the oath takes an obligation upon himself to do something. A covenant we talked about is an oath, a promissory oath. Now this is important for us to remember because the Lord has chosen to put himself under the same law of oaths that he has put us. When the Lord made the covenants with Abraham and Moses, for instance, it was his promising to do something. It was Jehovah taking an oath upon his own name to bring something about. Vows, by definitions, have conditions. Jephthah said, if God would give them victory, he would sacrifice the first thing that came through the door of his tent. Jacob said, if God would bring him back to Canaan, then the Lord would be his God and he'd build God a sanctuary. Well, vows became so popular among ancient Israel that a system of redeeming a vow, rather than actually performing it, was eventually developed. We see the basics of that redeeming a vow system in Leviticus 27, where it primarily concerns the matter of a person being given as a vow for service to the Lord. In other words, a father may say, if thus and so happens for me, I will dedicate my son to the service of the Lord. However, by law, full-time service to the Lord was the sole province of the Levites. So how was he going to complete this vow? So if a parent dedicated their child to service to the Lord as a vow, or if a slave owner dedicated one of his slaves for service to the Lord, since there was really no way for that vow to happen, there was a way for the person who made that vow to redeem back that vow for some money. The money was paid to the priesthood. All vow money was paid to the priesthood. But it was all the more appropriate because this vow of service to the Lord could only be truly fulfilled by working at the 
tabernacle, later the temple. And as I said, this was reserved by the Lord, strictly for the Levites, and anyone else attempting it was to be put to death. Then by definition, this was but a symbolic offering of the one making a vow, a vow that couldn't be fulfilled. So all along it was expected that the one making a vow would just pay some money to the temple. Now remember this when hearing Yeshua's words that we read about in Matthew about making vows and pledges. Because it was around this abusive backdrop of making unfulfillable vows, generally for the purpose of making that person look real pious or godly to the people standing around him, that he spoke against making vows and pledges as being a generally fruitless activity. Because while it may have been frivolous to the worshiper, it was dead serious business to God. Let's move on to chapter 31. Numbers chapter 31. We certainly won't cover all this tonight, but we're going to read it all. Adonai said to Moses, on behalf of the people of Israel, take vengeance on the Midianites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So Moses said to the people, equip men from among yourselves for war. They are to go and fight Midian in order to carry out Adonai's vengeance on Midian. You are to send to the war a thousand men from every one of Israel's tribes. So out of the thousands of people in Israel, a thousand armed men from each tribe, 12,000 altogether, were mustered for war. Moshe sent them, a thousand from each tribe, to the war, and he sent them and Pichas, the son of uh, Eleazar, the Kohen, to the war, with the holy utensils and the trumpets for sounding the alarm in his care. Well, they fought against Midian, as Adonai had ordered Moses, and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the others who were slain, Avi, Rechem, Sur, Hur, and Revah, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Bilam, the son of Beor, with the sword. The people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as booty all of their cattle, flocks, and other goods. They set fire to all their cities in the areas where they lived and all their camps. They took all the booty, all the people and animals they had captured, and brought the captives, booty and spoil, to Moses, Eleazar the Kohen, and the community of Israel in the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Moses... Eleazar the Cohen and all the community leaders went to meet them outside the camp. But Moses was angry with the army officers, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds coming in from the battlefield. Moses asked them, you'll let the women live? Why, these are the ones who, because of Belam's advice, caused the people of Israel to rebel, breaking faith with Adonai in the Peor incident. So that the plague broke out among Adonai's community. Now, kill every male among the little ones. Kill every woman who has ever slept with a man. But the young girls who have never slept with a man, keep alive for yourselves. Pitch your tents outside the camp for seven days. Whoever has killed a person or touched the corpse of someone slain, purify yourselves on the third and seventh days, you and your captives. Also purify every garment, whether of skin or goat's hair and everything made of wood. Eleazar the Cohen said to the soldiers who had gone to the front, This is the regulation from the Torah, which Adonai has ordered Moses. 
Even though gold, silver, brass, iron, tin, and lead can all withstand fire, so that you are to indeed purify everything made of these materials by having them pass through fire, nevertheless they must also be purified with the water for purification. Everything that can't withstand fire, you're to have go through the water. On the seventh day, you're to wash your clothes, and you will be clean, and after that, you may enter the camp. Adonai said to Moses, Take all the booty, both people and animals, you, Eleazar the Cohen, and the leaders of the cans of the community, and divide the booty into two parts, half for the experienced soldiers who went out to battle, half for the rest of the community. And from the portion of the soldiers who went out to battle, levy a tax, Brad and I consisting of one five hundredth of the persons, cattle, donkeys, and sheep. Take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the Cohen as a portion set apart for Adonai. From the half that goes to the people of Israel, you are to take one fiftieth of the persons and of the cattle, donkeys, and sheep, that is of all the livestock, and give them to the Levites taking care of the tabernacle of Adonai. Moses and Eleazar the Cohen did as Adonai had ordered Moses. The booty, over and above the portion which the soldiers took, came to 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, consisting of the women who had never slept with a man. The half, which was the portion of the soldiers who went out to fight, numbered 337,500 sheep, of which Adonai's tribute was 675. 36,000 cattle, of which Adonai's tribute was 72. 30,500 donkeys, of which Adonai's tribute was 61. And 16,000 persons, of whom Adonai's tribute was 32 persons. Moses gave the tribute set apart for Adonai to Eleazar the Cohen, as Adonai had ordered Moses. Now from the half that went to the people of Israel, which Moses separated from that of the men who had gone out to fight. Now the community's half consisted of 337,500 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 persons. From the people of Israel's half, Moses took one-fiftieth of the persons and animals and gave them to the Levites, taking care of the tabernacle of Adonai as Adonai had ordered Moses. The officers in charge of the thousands who fought, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds approached Moses and said to him, Your servants have counted all the soldiers under our command and not one of us is missing. We have brought an offering for Adonai. What every man has obtained in the way of gold jewelry armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, and belts to make atonement for ourselves before Adonai. Moses and Eleazar the Cohen accepted their gold, all the jewelry, and all the gold in this gift which the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds set apart for Adonai weighed 420 pounds. For the soldiers had taken booty every man for himself. And Moses and Eleazar the Cohen took the gold from the commanders of thousands and hundreds and brought it into the tent of meeting as a reminder for the people of Israel before Adonai. Well, we won't get too far into this tonight. But this chapter concerns the holy war that Adonai has ordered of Israel against Midian. Why war against Midian? 
It was because of the Midianites' allegiance with Moab. And therefore their participation in leading the Hebrews into idol worship of Chemosh, the chief god of Moab. Now in some ways, what we just read here is just an extension of the Balak and Balaam story. That's all it is. Okay, the, and of course, Balak was this king of Moab who asked a Mesopotamian sorcerer named Balaam to come and put a curse on Israel. Remember this story now? Okay, so that Moab and their ally Midian could successfully fight against Moses and his forces and then defeat them in battle. Now, why did Moab want to fight Israel? Because Israel would, with its 3 million population and 600,000 strong army, be the biggest dog in the kennel, and therefore able to dominate any other people group in the region. Almost all kings, King Balak included, assumed the throne with the goal of expanding their territory and influence. If Israel came into his area and survived... King Balak could kiss his hopes of regional domination goodbye. The Lord intervened in Balak's plan, had direct contact with Balaam and his donkey, and Balaam conceded that A, even if he did curse Israel, it would have no effect, because whatever Jehovah has blessed cannot be cursed, and whatever Jehovah has cursed cannot be blessed. And B, God made it clear that if Bilam ever attempted to utter a curse to bolster Israel's enemy, Moab, that God would summarily kill Balaam. Balaam told this to King Balak. Therefore, he said, I'm not going to curse Israel. And so he went back to Carchemish without being paid. However, immediately following the Balaam and Balak story, we find out that Israel remained in the area of Moab and that Balaam suggested to King Balak that Moab should go and infiltrate Israel and thus weaken them by getting the Midianite and the Moabite women to sexually entice the Hebrew men, and in the process persuade Israel to worship Chemosh, their God. It worked. It worked. And as a result of this, Jehovah brought a plague upon Israel for its idolatry. And if you recall, this plague killed 24,000 Hebrews. It ended only... Remember this story now? When a priest named Phineas speared a Hebrew man having intercourse with a Moabite woman while they were inside his tent, inside the camp of Israel, killing them both. The Lord considered that atonement for the national sin of apostasy and idolatry Israel had committed, so the plague ceased. But as often happens in the Bible, when Israel is led astray by someone, the pattern is that first Israel is punished for following, 
Then there's retribution against those who did the leading. That's what's happening here in Numbers 31 in the Holy War against Midian. Now before we begin studying all this verse by verse, which we won't do this week, let me add some information. By reading this story, you would think that Midian was destroyed, virtually brought to extinction. Therefore, after this event, there shouldn't have existed a Midian anymore. But as we move forward in our Torah study, and then even later on in parts of the Bible, we're going to find other encounters between Israel and Midian. And archaeology proves that Midian remained alive and well far beyond this era. So what gives? How does that jive with what we just read? Well, the answer is that Midian was much like Canaan in that era. There was no sovereign nation called Canaan. Canaan was just a general geographical area where several tribes... Um, that claimed Noah's grandson Canaan as an ancestor, as well as many other cultures that had no relation to Canaan, lived. Midian, um, recall Midian was where Moses had fled, this area right down here in, uh, as part of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, after Moses fled Egypt, he went there, and it was there where he met and married his Midianite wife, Sipporah. And it was where he met God at the burning bush. And therefore, I claim that Midian, by the way, was actually the location of Mount Sinai. Okay. The land of Midian was also just a general geographical area, like Canaan. It wasn't a nation, a sovereign nation with defined boundaries. Midian was composed of several tribes, all ancestors of a man named Midian, who was the son of Abraham's second wife, Keturah. So Midianites were actually Semites. They were descendants of Abraham, and they were distant cousins of Israel. Various of these Midianite tribes and clans were spread out all over the western portion of the Arabian Peninsula, ranging all the way north to Moab, west to Edom, and then on out into the Negev, which goes right on off our map here. And in our, story, in our Numbers 31 story, Moses and the Hebrews only destroyed those Midianite clans who had settled in the area of Moab, right up in here. Not all Midianites of every Midianite tribe. Yet what Israel did was quite significant in scope. Now our story, which begins in verse 1, has the Lord telling Moses that this battle with Midian would be the last major assignment he would have for him. Because as soon as he was finished with it, Moses would die. And we'll take that up next week.